Good morning, West Campus. So good to see you guys this morning. No need to adjust your LED wall. I am live right here. We're, we're together. It's so good to be with you. If you're our guest this morning, we're glad to see you this morning. We hope you feel welcome as a part of our fellowship and that you enjoy worshiping along with us today. My name's Matt. I'm the West Campus Pastor, and it's a special day for our church. I don't normally get to preach very often. It's my once-a-year opportunity, and so I've been waiting for a long time. This better be good, right? Um, uh, But it's a special day. I hope you were able to attend our cantata service in Fort Worth. There's a lot going on with that service. It's a great one. I hope you guys are able to catch it. And that's the reason why we don't have sermon notes or sermon screens this morning, so we're going to have to be doing this the old-fashioned way. So if you want to go ahead and start turning to Luke chapter 1, you're going to have to follow along in your Bible, and then I'll do my best to give you the points of my sermon as we go along. There'll be three points that I want you to see and three points of application at the end, pretty standard. It's what pastors do, right? They don't all start with the same letter, though, so don't worry. Um, But anyway, I want you guys to follow along and join in because it's a really good story this morning. Now, while you're turning there, I want, to, I want to tell you, some of you guys may know, some of you may not, but I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and I got my start as a youth pastor way back in the day. And as a part of youth ministry, you know that any time you go to a camp or any kind of retreat center or kind of ropes course, you're going to find yourself doing a trust fall at some point. Now, some of you guys may have grown up with trust falls like I did. I was a child of the 80s, and so at the 90s, trust falls were all the rage. There were lots of, lots of them happening all the time. But what it is, is essentially where a bunch of youth pastors probably got together and said, hey, how can we get you know, kids to trust in Jesus? I got a great idea. Let's put them on a platform about five feet tall, have them turn around backwards, cross their arms, and fall backwards into the outstretched arms of their peers. That'll get them to trust Jesus. That's such a youth pastor thing too, right? I mean, like, it's, it's, it's a decent idea. I love your heart with it, but we're not always thinking these things through all the way necessarily. So I remember a time when I was facilitating, it was a group of boys. Uh, we were, it was a middle school uh, retreat. I was their small group leader, and it was a group of boys that were doing this ropes course. We'd gone all the way through, and we got to the end, and we were finally coming to this tr- trust fall platform, and a bunch of guys had done it. And then one of the guys in the group got up on the platform, and you can tell he was a little bit nervous, and he was not exactly excited about falling backwards into the outstretched arms of his middle school buddies. And he stood there for what started to become an awkwardly long time. And we were all encouraging him, trying to say, hey, man, you're going to be great. It's going to be awesome. You can do this. And I just looked at him at one point, and I said, hey, don't you believe that we're going to catch you? And this middle schooler turned around and looked at me and he said, well, yeah, I believe you're going to catch me. That doesn't mean that you will. And I was like, whoa, that was really profound for a 12-year-old. Well done. But that also illustrates something that's really important that I want you guys to see this morning, that there is a, very, there's a reason why they call them trust falls and not belief falls. There's a very fine distinction between two words that are very similar, trust and belief, very similar terms, but a very important distinction. You see, beliefs tend to be cognitive. They're intellectual. They're things that really reside in our heads. But trust is something more. Trust is what happens when we become so confident in our beliefs that we're finally willing to act on them regardless of the risk. 
Trust and belief, though they're similar, are very distinct terms. And just like the middle school student in the trust fall situation, there are some times in life where we find ourselves, we know we believe something, but something happens in our lives and we're not quite ready to trust. And those moments can be tough. They can be awkward. They can be full of tension. They can even be scary. You know, my family, we, we, uh, we just went through a really hard time a, a couple of months ago. We uh, lost our dog. Um, Cinco was his name. He's 12 years old. He uh, had, a, had a good fight with cancer, and we had to say goodbye to him. And it was, uh, he's a great dog. He, he's um, the oldest in our family, brought, welcomed all of our kids home from the hospital after they were born. Good dog, loved us so well. And, you know, Darcy and I, as parents, we've never really walked through a close death with our children. There's never been a time where we've had to kind of walk them through that. And so this presented a little bit of a challenge for us as parents and how we were going to help our kids grieve, how we were going to tell them what was going on, how, it was going to, how we were going to walk them through the grief process afterwards. And if you don't know my wife, Darcy, and if you don't know me very well, you guys kind of need to know that we're cut from two different pieces of cloth. You know, Darcy's satin, you know, soft and gentle and warm, and I'm basically like a burlap sack, you know, just kind of rough around the edges, a little coarse sometimes. And when it came to how to do this, I certainly believed that Darcy would do a great job in helping our kids walk through a really tough moment. But as the moment came, I found myself kind of hovering over her, making sure she was doing it right, which didn't really go over well with her, by the way. And she would probably tell you the same thing, that she wanted to make sure I wasn't too rough and um, harsh with the kids. And so she hovered around me, and that created some tension and some difficulty. We believe in each other, I promise that we do. But in that moment, we weren't exactly ready to trust each other. And that was really hard, it was really awkward, and it created some tension for us. See, that's what we do when we're not ready to trust. Even if we have belief, when we're not ready to trust, we find ways to do life without trust at all. We seek to control. We control opportunities. We try to control our outcomes. We try to control our appearances so that we're never faced with the need to put our lives in someone else's hands. We all do this. We do this as parents. We do this as spouses, as children, students, employees. And we also do this with the Lord. We do it with God. God is there saying to us, hey, don't you believe I'm going to catch you? And a lot of times we're looking back at him saying, yeah, I believe, but it doesn't mean that you will. We certainly believe in God, but at the same time, there are moments when there's not a lot of evidence that we're actively trusting him in our day-to-day lives. We're more concerned about controlling our opportunities, controlling our outcomes, and controlling our appearances than we are placing our lives in God's hands. Friends, I, I want you to see this morning that God wants us to trust him completely. 
That's what he wants. That's why he has sent Jesus to this earth. That's why we're doing this sermon series. Why on earth has Jesus come to this earth? Because he wants us to trust him completely. He certainly wants us to believe in him. I'm not saying that we shouldn't believe in him. But you know that the demons also believe in God. So the question is, do we trust him? Do we realize that Jesus has come to earth so that we would trust God completely? So how does that happen? What does that look like? How can our beliefs grow up into action-oriented trust? Well, there's a story at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and do that. And it's a great story. It's a story about a man who was a deep and religious believer in God. But he wasn't ready to trust God when the time came. It's an important story to Luke because out of all the stories Luke could have picked to open his gospel, out of all the things he could have told us about Mary or about Joseph or about Jesus, he doesn't tell us any stories about them. He picks this story to start his entire gospel about the Lord Jesus. And it's a Christmas story too. It happens in the months leading up to the birth of Jesus. It's a story about a man named Zachariah. And it's a story about how he learned how to trust God completely. So let's take a look here in Luke chapter one. I'm gonna start here in verse five. Verse five, I'm gonna show you three things about Zachariah that I want you to pay attention to. Verse five, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, what Luke wants us to see in his introduction here is that Zechariah is an impressive man, that he has his life all together. First, he's a priest, which means he's given his entire life to serving and worshiping God. He is a very religious, devout, and devoted man. Secondly, he's married to the daughter of a priest, and not just any daughter of a priest, but the daughter of the priest of the line of Aaron, the great high priest. So in those days, it was said that if you were able to marry a priest's daughter, it was considered a great blessing. And not only that, but both Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke describes as righteous and blameless. And if you know anything about the Old Testament and what it says about priests and what they have to do in the temple, they have to be righteous. They have to be blameless or else they can't do their jobs. And so to say that a priest is righteous and blameless is saying something extraordinary about this couple. They're a power couple. This couple had it going on. They had it all together. The problem was they didn't have a child and they're advanced in years. And for apparently no apparent reason, in those days, if you were childless, it was generally considered a curse for some sin that you had committed in your past. But according to the description that Luke gives us, 
They had been living righteously and blamelessly, so they have a child for no reason, and they're way past the age of having kids. And it's at this point that I think Luke wants us to remember a story that we should all know very well, a very similar story, the story of Abraham and Sarah, an elderly couple advanced in years who wanted to have a child, but the wife was barren. I think Luke means for us to keep that story in the front of our minds. Now, as we continue in the story, we see the story in Zechariah's life that that, uh, Luke wants us to to pay attention to. Look in verse 8. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, in the days of the first century, in the time of Zechariah, Zechariah would have been about one of 18,000 priests. That's a lot of priests that would be involved in the worship of God at the temple. And they wouldn't all serve at once. They would serve in one-week rotations in these little divisions, one week, twice a year. So they weren't up there very often. And they would, when they were up there, they would walk into the temple and they would take care of different pieces within the temple. This is a picture of the temple in the first century. And you know, if you've studied anything about this, that there's a temple courtyard and then you walk up the steps and inside the doors is a room called the holy place. And then beyond the curtain inside there is what's called the holy of holies, where the Israelites believed the presence of the Lord dwelled. And in the holy place, there were three stations. There was a table of showbread, a golden lampstand, and an altar of incense. And what Zechariah had been chosen to do was to go inside the holy place and to place incense on the altar of incense and burn it. And it would go up in smoke, and that smoke represents the prayers of the nation of Israel. So Zechariah is effectively praying on behalf of the nation. And because he's one of 18,000 priests and that he got this responsibility by essentially drawing straws, this is probably the first and the only time Zechariah has ever done this. It is likely that this day is the most important and biggest moment of his priestly career. Okay? So he goes into the temple, he's offering incense on the altar, and it's burning, and he's offering prayers for the people, and then boom, the angel Gabriel shows up right next to the altar. And he's like, what? Does this happen to everybody that comes in here? The angel Gabriel's standing there right next to him, and he says, what's up? That's not in the Greek. Um, He says, Gabriel, or it says, Zechariah, I'm the angel Gabriel. I am here. I've got great news. You are going to have a son in your old age, just like Abraham and Sarah. And he is going to be the forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah to come to save Israel. And you're going to name him John. And we know him as John the Baptist. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. So Zechariah's in here. He's offering incense. He's having a conversation with an angel. He's a righteous and blameless priest. So how do we expect Zechariah to react at this point? 
oh my gosh, this is the best news ever. Thank you so much, Gabriel. I'm so excited about this. I've been waiting for it my whole life. This is amazing. What a great day. That's not exactly how he reacts. Look at verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? Which in the Greek is translated, you serious, Clark? <laughs> how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. That's what you're supposed to say, guys. You're the old man and your wife is advanced. I'm advanced in years, but she's still advanced no matter what she is. So I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. How am I supposed to do this? This is impossible. And the angel answered him and said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And that's the first thing I want you to see about the life of Zechariah here. Point number one is that Zechariah looked great on the outside. He had everything going on, checking all the boxes. But he didn't trust God. He had trust issues. Zechariah looked good on the outside, but he still had trust issues. He did not believe the words of Gabriel. Instead of saying thank you, he asked for proof. He asked for a guarantee as if God's word to him wasn't good enough. And a righteous and blameless man who was serving as a priest in a temple here acts more like someone who doesn't believe in God at all than someone who trusts his word. And the irony here, of course, is that Zechariah would have very well known the story of Abraham and Sarah. That there is a precedent for God coming with an angel to an elderly couple and telling them that they're going to have a child and that that child is going to do great things. That was not only had happened in the past, but would give Zechariah reason to believe it to be true today. And that's the thing I want you to see here first, is that no matter how impressive we might be, no matter how many boxes we may feel like we're checking in our lives, if we don't believe what God says, we will not trust him. If we don't believe what God says, we will not trust him, and we never follow someone we don't trust. Have you ever been in Zachariah's shoes? Found yourself in a situation where God has said something to you in his word. You believed it to be true, but you maybe weren't quite ready to trust that it would be true if you acted on it, if you put your life in his hands. I mean, take what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. He says, do not worry. How's it been the past 10 months with that worry thing? Buy some more toilet paper quick. Later on, he says, love your enemies. But they're wrong. I need to get on Facebook and tell them that they're wrong. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. I'll just look it up on YouTube. 
When we believe but we don't trust, we find ourselves trying to control our outcomes, our opportunities, and even our appearances. No matter how impressive we might be to others, if we don't trust what God says, we will not trust him. And we never follow someone we don't trust. It's a failure in Zechariah's life. But the good news is, God isn't done with him. And the good news for us and the failures that we have, God's not done with us either. He uses them as opportunities for growth. But the question is, how does God help someone as righteous and as blameless as Zechariah learn how to trust? And that's the second thing I want you to see about Zechariah today, is that God gives Zechariah time. And specifically, God gives Zechariah time to remember. You guys know what Zechariah's name means in Hebrew? It means the Lord remembered. As if to say, the Lord remembered again and again and again. As if to say, God doesn't forget his promises. God doesn't forget what he's done with Abraham and Sarah. God doesn't forget anything. He keeps his word. But what had happened to Zechariah? He had forgotten. He had forgotten his word. And so Zechariah had plenty of time in silence. He comes out of the temple, and he's not just that he can't speak. The text later on tells us that he can't hear. So he can't speak. He can't hear. He can't work. He can't shop. He can't go to talk to his wife. He is in complete and total silence until Elizabeth gives birth to John. So he's in complete and total silence for nine months. Most of us couldn't make it nine minutes in complete and total silence. He goes nine months, and all of this with an elderly, pregnant wife, bless her heart. Maybe not. Maybe it's a good thing that he couldn't hear. Either way, it would have been rough. Friends, Silence is one of the most underrated opportunities for growth that we have in our lives. We live in a noisy world, and the noise that we live in and among isn't neutral. It's wanting to shape us. It's wanting to tell us what to believe and how to act and what we should think about things. And if we're not silent before God and not silent before his word, then how can we remember what God has said when the time comes when we need to trust him? And when you think about it, that's really all Zechariah had at this point. Silence and God's word. He had God's word about his, his own son, John. He had his word about the nation of Israel, about the coming of the Messiah. And I can just picture it. He's sitting there in silence. He's getting over his regrets and he's beginning to think and he's going, now wait a second, I remember There's a passage in Isaiah 7 that says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it's probably at this point, when Zechariah is sitting there in total silence, that Mary comes to visit Elizabeth's house. Because they're related. And Zechariah's watching the exchange between Mary and Elizabeth. 
when they both recognize that Mary is now pregnant out of wedlock. And Zechariah has Isaiah 7 in the back of his mind going, whoa. And that made him think of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he's thinking, Mary is pregnant. She's telling Elizabeth, whoa. Now, Gabriel said that my son would prepare the way. Isaiah 40 talks about that. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi 3.1 says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming. Wait a second. What Gabriel told me isn't just coming true. It's becoming flesh. What Gabriel told me, what he promised me would happen, is not just a true statement, some ideology, but it's actually becoming flesh and dwelling in and near me. Zechariah sees here in both the pregnancy of Mary and Elizabeth that God's plan of salvation that he has been foreshadowing for thousands of years is finally coming to pass. His word, his promises are becoming so sure, so certain that they are becoming flesh in his own home. Amazing. And that's what I want us to see here with the second point is that in silence and over time, God's word can be heard clearly, considered carefully, and obeyed wholeheartedly. And that's how we learn to begin to trust God. We can't trust what we don't know. If we're not in his word, we will never have the opportunity to trust it. Now, I know most of us aren't looking at nine months in total silence anytime soon. That would be nice. But since we're not, are we spending any time in silence before God's word? How can we trust him when the time comes if we have not spent time silently before what he said to us? If we want to trust the Lord and believe what he says, then we need to know what he said so that we can trust it when the moment is in front of us. So we need to be in front of his word over time so that his word can be heard clearly, considered carefully, and believed wholeheartedly. Otherwise, we'll just listen to the noise. We'll disbelieve or we'll just forget. So what happens? Let's finish up here. Let's see what happens here at the end of the story. It comes time for Elizabeth to be born. So skip down here to verse 57 and we'll finish the story. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, no, he shall be called John. 
And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now, Zechariah does three things here that I don't want you to miss because they are indications to me that he has moved on from belief and his belief has grown up into firm trust in God. And if they're indicators in Zechariah's life, they probably need to be indicators in our own lives of whether or not we trust the Lord. So let's look. The first thing I want you to see is, number one, Zechariah obeyed immediately. My kids are in the service today, and they know we have a little slogan in our house. How do we obey? Right away, all the way, in a happy way. They just rolled their eyes at me. You couldn't see that part. Um, But Zechariah, when it comes to the moment where he needs to obey, he obeys without hesitation. He doesn't wait. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need proof. He doesn't need a guarantee. His beliefs Now they lead to action. He does it without compromising. His friends and his family are saying, hey, this is a tradition you're supposed to obey, and they're putting pressure on him. But he still obeys. And also, he obeys without understanding. Do you guys understand that understanding is not a prerequisite for obedience? Obedience doesn't require understanding. It requires trust. So he obeys immediately. Second thing he does, he proclaims joyfully. He proclaims joyfully. He has been silent for nine months. Can't hear, can't speak. His mouth is finally opened. His ears are finally opened. What would you say? What would you do? Would you sing a country song about how the past nine months have been for you? No. Zechariah, look at the song that he sings, guys. Look here in verse 68. This is the song of a man who had been silent before God's word for nine months. He'd put all these two and two things together about what God was doing and listen to what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. This wouldn't have happened had Abraham not had a child miraculously because of the visit of an angel who made Abraham the father of a nation, all part of God's salvific plan. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know, for centuries, the church has called this portion of Luke 1 the Benedictus. I'm like, man, that's a lame name. No offense. This is joy to the world. That's what this is. This is Zachariah's rendition of joy to the world. Look at a few things about his song right here that show the change in his life. 
The song isn't about John. He spent nine months. He finally has a son he's always waited for. And it's not about him. The song he sings is about Jesus, about the Messiah. And it's happening before he's even born. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And also, the song is not about the past nine months. It's about the future. But Zechariah is so confident about what's going to happen in the future, he sings his song in the past tense. As if it's already happened. That's how sure, how certain, how confident Zechariah's belief in God's word has become over time. The advent of Jesus means that God can be trusted. And he can be trusted all the time. His promises are so sure, so certain, that they're going to become flesh and dwell among us. And the last thing Zechariah does is that he waits faithfully. In the last verse of chapter 1, verse 80, it says, And the child grew, became strong in spirit, and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So Zechariah raises John in the same tradition, in the same lessons that he's learned. His son became strong in spirit. Zechariah didn't try to live out anything through his son. Instead of um, parading him around, like I'm sure many of us dads would have been tempted to do, he kept him hidden. He kept it quiet. He had learned how to wait. He had learned how to trust God's timing. And he was obedient once again. You know, there's no greater demonstration of trust in God's word than a willingness to wait indefinitely for it to come to pass without wavering in our faithfulness. West Campus, Zachariah is a very impressive man. But when it came time in his relationship with the Lord, for him to trust, it wasn't there. He told God, I believe you can catch me, but that doesn't mean that you will. And God in his generosity gave Zechariah just what he needed to trust, the fulfillment of every promise he ever made in the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope that any time you face those trustful moments in your own life, that you'll remember the story, the story of Zechariah. And if you're a skeptic about God, you're a doubter, you don't believe in Jesus, that's okay. Investigate him. Read about him. Learn what he says. Research. Ask questions. You can't believe in something that you don't even know. But for those of us who do believe, Three questions we need to be asking ourselves regularly about whether or not we trust the God we believe in. Am I obeying God immediately? Do I even know his word well enough to obey it? Secondly, am I proclaiming him joyfully and am I waiting faithfully? It's my prayer for us, West Campus, that we will come to realize and see that the incarnation of Jesus is very literally God's word becoming so sure, so certain, so trustworthy that it becomes flesh and dwells among us. The invisible God is becoming visible so that we might learn to trust God completely, just like Zechariah did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for the grace that you offered Zechariah. As you continued to want him to trust you, you didn't give up on him. You gave him opportunity with your word. You gave him opportunity over time. And he was able to grow and proclaim and obey and wait just like you needed him to. So, Father, I pray that the same would be true for us. That we wouldn't do just what the demons do and just believe in God. But that we would believe so confidently, so surely, so deeply, that we would be moved to action. That we would trust that everything that God said to us is true. And I pray that we would sing like it too. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.